Praise the Lord and good evening. Welcome once again to our Bible study series, Out of Bondage into Abundance. We're in part six of seven parts, and if you're just joining us, uh, don't be dismayed. We have notes and recordings for all of the previous uh, sessions that we've done on this. Uh, all of those materials are available at our website, new-life-ministries.org. And if you are following on the notes, we've come to page 88. And again, that's in part 6, Conquering Seven Nations. <clears throat> if you were with us on Sunday, uh, we were talking about the story of Joseph, and even if you weren't, you're probably familiar with the story. And it, it makes what we are studying here all the more amazing that when you understand God and His purposes and His plans, there's no such thing as an accident or a coincidence. He is a sovereign God who is in absolute control of every detail of the universe. And the whole story of Joseph explains how Israel ended up down in Egypt and eventually became slaves there. And remember all of this fulfilling the prophecy that God gave Abraham way back in Genesis 15, that his descendants would be slaves in a strange land for 400 years. God would bring them out of that slavery take them into the land of Canaan and take them out with great abundance and great wealth. And the story of Joseph is a key part of that bigger story. How in the world were Abraham's descendants going to end up in Egypt? Well, the story of Joseph explains all of that. And Joseph very rightly uh explained the whole story of his life many, many years later when he told his brothers, you didn't send me here. God sent me here. What an amazing statement. His brothers sold him as a slave to the Ishmaelites. They eventually sold him to Potiphar in Egypt, and that's how he ended up in Egypt. But instead of saying, you guys did me bad, and you guys are the reason I ended up in this stinking place called Egypt. He said, God sent me here. You meant evil, God meant good. God is in charge of my life. And what a powerful message for all of us. Wherever we're at in our journey with God, rest assured, He's taking us out of bondage and into abundance. He wants every one of us to enter into the abundant life of Jesus Christ. And wherever we're at in that journey, know for certain that if you've surrendered your life to the Lord Jesus Christ, you love Him with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, Paul tells you this, all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to His purpose. And so, every step of the way, God is in charge, God is orchestrating all of the events to bring about His grand plan in the end. And so, in our study, 
We've looked at all of the aspects of Israel coming out of bondage, crossing through the Red Sea, traveling to Mount Sinai, going through the wilderness for 40 years, finally crossing the River Jordan, going over into the land of Canaan. And repeatedly along the way, God had been telling them, don't worry, but when you get to Canaan, there are some other nations who are living there. They're evil, they're wicked nations, and we're going to have to drive them all out so that you can take possession of their land. Don't worry, they're bigger than you are, stronger than you are, but I will go ahead of you as a devouring fire. I will send in my hornets and drive every last one of them out, and then you can possess the land that flows with milk and honey. And we ended last time talking about why there were seven of these nations listed in Deuteronomy 7 and where they came from. I think the origin of these seven nations is a powerful uh, study in itself. And we saw that six of the seven nations were all descended from Noah's grandson Canaan who was cursed by Noah, and thus cursed by God, after Canaan's father, Ham, exposed his father's nakedness. And I'll give you an outline again of the seven nations we're going to be looking at, and I'm not going to go through all that we went through last time, but these were wicked nations. They were immoral, they were perverse They were practicing uh, immorality, idolatry, uh, human sacrifice, and homosexuality. And God said, because of all of their detestable practices, the land was going to vomit them out. He wanted to rid the land of these evil nations, but then he warned the Israelites, if you adopt their same practices and copy their same religion, then the land will vomit you out too. So, not only did God want them to defeat these nations, he didn't want them to become like them. He didn't want them making any treaties with them, marrying any of their people, or having anything to do with them. Destroy them utterly, were the words God gave them concerning these seven nations. Now, For you and for me, we're not commissioned by God to go kill anybody, so we're not talking about a flesh and blood kind of a war now. Our warfare is not against flesh and blood, it's against powers, principalities, it's against sin, demons, darkness, evil. And so each one of these physical nations that inhabited the land of Canaan that the Israelites had to overcome they represent different types of evil, sin, or darkness that you and I, as children of God, need to overcome. And not to keep harping on this number seven, but it is a very key number. It's the number of fullness or perfection. And in the case of these seven nations... They represent evil coming to its fullness. We saw that in Genesis chapter 15. The sin of the Amorites has not come to full measure yet. 
to perfection. And so they had a perfect number, seven nations, evil, wicked, immoral, perverse nations that they needed to overcome. And I don't believe it's any coincidence when we come to the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, there are seven messages to seven churches. You can read about them in Revelation 2 and 3. And very interestingly, every one of the seven messages ends on this same refrain, to him who overcomes, and then a specific reward or promise is given to that particular church. But all seven of them are commissioned by God to overcome something, overcome evil. And so we are called to be overcomers. There are seven different nations that Israel had to overcome. And I think when you look at the meanings or the representation of these seven nations, it pretty much encompasses all evil, all wickedness, and all darkness that you and I need to overcome in our Christian lives. Let me go through the list again, and then I want to get right into the first nation. The seven nations that we listed at the end of last week's study are as follows. Number one, Canaanites. They represent worldliness, and the love of money. Number two, the Amorites. They represent pride. Number three, Hittites represent fear and unbelief. Four, Hivites represent deception, lying, and hypocrisy. Girgashites represent backsliding and slothfulness. Parasites represent independence, separation, and division. And finally, Jebusites represent discouragement and depression. And hopefully, we'll be able to give some reasons to back up each one of those uh, representations for these seven nations. Let's go ahead and start with the first one, the Canaanites. Remember, five other nations descended from Canaan. And I I think this is a powerful message in itself. You have six of the seven nations all centered around the Canaanites, which were the descendants, of course, of Canaan. Canaan gave rise to five of the six other nations. And we'll talk about this more in a moment, but the Canaanites, remember, we have said, represent worldliness, love of the world, or love of money. Isn't it interesting, and we're going to look at all these verses, but isn't it interesting that in 1 Timothy 6, Paul says, the love of money is the root of all evil. The root of all evil. Canaan is the root of all the other nations with the exception of one, and we don't know their origin or their genealogy. They may have come from Canaan or not. We don't know where they came from. But this nation 
the reason I'm doing it first is, in a sense, they're the root of all the other nations. And so, if we can conquer this one, we're well on our way to conquering the other ones, but the reverse is also true. If we're stuck here at this first nation, if we still love the world, we love money, we love stuff, it's going to be hard to move beyond that and conquer any of the other ones. So this first one is at the top of the list for a reason. Now, let's try to explain why we believe the Canaanites represent worldliness, love of money. Let's begin in Numbers chapter 13, verse 29. I always try to look for scriptures where the particular nation is actually mentioned, see if there's anything said about where they lived, what their activities were. Then I want to look at the meaning of the name in Hebrew and try to put all that together and see if there's a picture that begins to emerge. Okay, Numbers 13:29. The Amalekites, <clears throat> excuse me. The Amalekites live in the Negev. The Hittites, Jebusites, and Amorites live in the hill country, and the Canaanites live near the sea and along the Jordan. So they lived in a different place from the other nations. They live near the sea, and there's a reason for that. When we look at the literal meaning of the name, I think we can start to piece this together. The Hebrew for Canaanite means a peddler, a merchant, one who conducted mercantile caravans, or a trafficker. These were business people. They were peddlers, merchants. They sold and they bought goods. Thus, they lived near the sea, because that was the primary... Um, way of transporting their merchandise in those days, and living near the sea was a great asset. They could use ships to move their merchandise from place to place. So these are the traffickers, the merchants, the peddlers. They were involved in buying and selling goods. And because they were engaged in that lifestyle, it was very, very convenient for them to live near the sea, and it also mentions along the Jordan, waterways to help them with their trafficking. Okay, we're saying that the Canaanites represent a worldly spirit, the love of money, the love of the world, just being involved in the material aspects of life, buying, selling, making money, getting more material stuff, and loving the stuff. You see, way back in the Old Testament, God rebuked the Israelites and compared them to the Canaanites. That wasn't a very nice comparison. And you find this in Ezekiel 16, verses 2 and 3. 
It says, Son of man, confront Jerusalem with her detestable practices and say, This is what the Sovereign Lord says to Jerusalem. Your ancestry and birth were in the land of the Canaanites. Your father was an Amorite and your mother a Hittite. That's a real rebuke from God, basically saying, you're just like those enemy nations that I told you many, many years ago you had to destroy and drive out. And specifically, he says, your ancestry and birth is from the Canaanites. Now, when we talk about the world, we're not talking about planet Earth, the globe that's rotating around in space and revolving around the sun with the other planets. When the Bible talks about the world, it's referring to the whole system of the world. The fallen system, the system that is opposed to God, opposed to Christ, and it is a sinful system. Let's begin with a very familiar verse, and a very powerful one, in the New Testament. 1 John 2, verses 15 to 17. It says, Do not love the world, or anything in the world. Wow, that's pretty broad. Do not love the world, or anything in the world. You know, we often hear people say, oh, I love my car. I love my house. Well, love probably isn't the right word to be using, and hopefully we're not in love with our car or our house, because John says, don't do it. Don't love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world... Love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world. Now notice, he's not just talking about cars and boats and houses. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. That's why I said earlier, the world is not just the physical material part of it. It's the whole system, the whole philosophy, the whole mindset that is opposed to God. And John elaborates a little bit more here, saying the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And by the way, when we talk about the love of money, Paul said the love of money is the root of all evil. He doesn't specify a quantity of money. That's not the point. Some people who have a very little bit of money are still very greedy. They still love every rotten cent that they have. Whereas some people are very wealthy, but they're not bound by greed. They're free 
from that spirit of greed and covetousness, and they're very generous, and they use their money wisely for the kingdom of God. So, money is not the root of all evil, and it's not even the amount of money that is the root of all evil. It's the love of it. And you can love a penny just as much as you love a billion dollars. Either one of them may constitute greed in the sight of God. So just keep that in the back of your mind. We're not talking about the amount of money so much as the spirit that is in us. John is recommending to every Christian, get free from your love, your attachment, your worship of anything in this world. Because if you love the world, then the love of God cannot be in you. They're mutually exclusive. One drives out the other. And so, it gets even worse in the next passage. James 4.4 4 is probably also very familiar to you. Uh, if you're familiar with the book of James, James doesn't mince words. He tells it like it is. And this is a strong warning to every one of us. James 4.4 4. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. You know, in these last days, it's very sad, but I see many, many Christians having a love affair with the world. They love the world, they love the stuff in the world, and they've even bought and swallowed hook, line, and sinker the philosophies of the world. These are ungodly philosophies, and any philosophy, I don't care how popular it is, I don't care if 99.9% .9 of all Americans believe that way, if it's a philosophy that is contrary to the Word of God, we must not embrace it. And we're going to have many opportunities in these coming days to make a choice. We're either going to make friends with the world and be an enemy of God, or be a friend of God like Abraham, and yes, we will be enemies of the world. The world is not going to like you if you stand for what's right, if you stand for the Word of God. I gave up a long time ago trying to win any popularity contest. I can't serve Christ and be popular with everybody. I, I want to try to love everyone. I don't want to be mean to anybody, but... I can't change, twist, compromise the Word of God to make it fit in with the world's philosophy. So, friendship with the world means we're adopting its belief system, we're adopting its philosophies, we're buying into the whole mindset of the world. James says it's adultery, and you end up becoming an enemy of God. We better know the Word of God in these last days 
have our minds transformed and renewed through the Word of God so that we know what we believe and our beliefs are lined up with the Word of God, not with the latest poll that came out on the evening news. Again, in the book of James, chapter 1, he has some more things to say about the world and what it does to us as Christians. Jesus is coming for a bride without spot, without wrinkle, without any blemish, without any pollution or contamination from sin or from the world. And James says in chapter 1, verse 27, Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble, and listen to this, to keep oneself unspotted from the world. Unspotted from the world. The word used in the Amplified Bible is uncontaminated. The New American Standard uses unstained. And the NIV says not polluted. So putting all this together, when you and I embrace the world, its stuff, its philosophies, its fallen belief system, it will end up spotting our garments, contaminating, staining, and polluting us. We become defiled by this world. That's why we must be very careful to not love the world or anything in the world, not have any friendship with the world, not try to be like the world. You know, I don't know why the church keeps trying, and when I say church, I'm not talking about your church or my church. I'm talking about the church in general. I can't understand why the church always wants to jump on board with the world in the latest fads or fashions, even when they're contrary to the Word of God. Why do we want to copy the world? Why do we want to look like the world, sing like the world, write like the world, or do anything like the world? The world is going to hell. The world is at enmity with God. Why do we want to copy it? The church should have its own music, should have its own hairstyles, should have its own clothing styles. We don't need to copy Hollywood or Madison, Madison Avenue. We need to follow the words, the rules, the laws of our God and the Holy Spirit. Keep yourself unspotted, unstained, uncontaminated, unpolluted from the world. And sadly, you see from time to time, people who were once walking with the Lord, they're enamored with the world and the stuff of the world, and like the prodigal son, they say goodbye to father, and they go off to find their fortune, not knowing they're going to end up in a pig pen somewhere, completely destitute. But you find sad scriptures like this next one in the writings of Paul, 2 Timothy 4, verse 10. And I'm going to read here from the New King James. 
He's speaking about one of his fellow ministers, a worker who had once worked alongside him in the gospel. He says, Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world, and has departed for Thessalonica, Crescens for Galatia, Titus for Dalmatia. He has forsaken me, having loved the present world. You know, statistics don't lie, especially we hear that many, many young people, young adults especially, when they get around college age, they go off to college, they embrace all kinds of ungodly philosophies that are being taught in our colleges and universities as truth, but they're actually lies, and these young people are obviously not strong enough, they're not armed in the Word of God to be able to withstand all these atheistic and humanistic and ungodly philosophies that are being spouted uh, as truth on the college campuses. And by the time they're graduating from college, they're moving on to their careers and their fields of expertise, but they're also moving away from the church. And many of them have departed from the faith, having loved this present world. They get involved in drinking, in drugs, in immoral uh, sex, and other kinds of uh, liberties that weren't afforded to them before that. And by the time they're done with college, they're also done with church. We need to be very careful uh, to do the best we can. We can't prevent this. But we as parents should do the best we can to prepare and arm our children to be able to face those onslaughts when they go out into the world. Not to mention, I would highly recommend looking for a Christian school, a Christian college, if at all possible. All right. This world, again, is not just the material part of it. It's the whole system And we find again in 1 John that the whole system, the reason we should not compromise with it, befriend it, or love it, is because it is presently under the control of Satan. This next verse might surprise you, but this is what the Bible teaches. 1 John 5 and verse 19. John writes, we know that we are children of God, and that the whole world, note those words, whole world is under the control of the evil one. Huh. The whole world is under the control of the evil one. You may remember in Matthew 4, when Jesus had his temptations in the wilderness with the devil, here's what we read there in Matthew 4, verses 8 to 10. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him, showed Jesus, all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And here's what Satan said to Jesus. 
All this I will give you if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. I want you to notice what Jesus didn't say in response to Satan offering him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor and saying, This I will give to you. Jesus did not say, Oh, Satan, come on, you're lying again. That's not your stuff. You can't give that to anybody. Yes, he can. Jesus knew the kingdoms of the world and their splendor belong to Satan. And he can give them to whomever he wants. And some people have literally sold their souls to Satan to get the kingdoms of this world, the riches, the glory, and the splendor of this world. Jesus rejected it all and said, Away from me, Satan. Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. There are many other scriptures that speak to this same point. The, the fallen world system is fallen because it's under the control presently of the evil one. Notice in 2 Corinthians 4, verses 3 and 4. I'll read here from the New American Standard. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case... The God of this world, he's not talking about the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's the lowercase g, little God. In whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. He's talking about the devil. The devil is the God of this world. And <clears throat> through his false teachings, through false religion, through false philosophy, through all the things we spoke about earlier that are being taught on college campuses, humanistic philosophies, atheistic philosophies, he's blinding the minds of those who refuse to believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. John 14, verses 30 and 31 these are the words of Christ himself. I will not say much more to you, for the prince of this world is coming. He's talking about the devil. The prince of this world is coming. He has no hold over me. But he comes so that the world may learn that I love the Father and do exactly what my Father has commanded me. The God of this world, the prince of this world, the controller of this world, the one who owns the kingdoms and the splendor of this world, is the devil. One more, Ephesians 2, verses 1 to 3. As for you, he's writing to Christians in Ephesus, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world. Notice that. 
you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air. You're not talking about God. The ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh, following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. Followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air. It's an interesting expression. We often refer to things that are traveling through the air. The, the radio waves, the, the air waves, the, the media. Basically, with a few exceptions, the media is owned by the ruler of the kingdom of the air. Thank God for Christian radio, a few programs. Thank God for Christian TV, a few programs. By and large, the, the air, the airwaves, the internet, and all that goes on there, TV, radio, the media is under the control of the evil one. And that's why, as Christians, we need to invade the media as much as possible. And get on radio, get on television, write books, get out there and fight against this spirit that is trying to work in those who are disobedient. The spirit, the God of this world, who is blinding the minds of unbelievers. Basically, the Bible tells us there are two spirits. We have to choose which one we're going to follow, which one we're going to embrace, and which one we're going to receive into our spirit. 1 Corinthians 2.12, Paul tells us there's a spirit of the world and there's the spirit of God. Hear what he says. What we have received is not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may understand what God has freely given us. There's a spirit behind this world. It's evil. It's dark. It wants to take people away from Christ. It wants to blind their minds to belief in the gospel. It's it's a spirit that comes to people just like Satan came to Jesus in the wilderness and said, bow down and worship me, and I'll give you all these kingdoms. I'll give you the riches. I'll give you fame. I'll give you glory. I'll give you the splendor of the world. And many a soul has done that to their regret. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world, neither the spirit that is behind the ways of this world, the whole system of this world. Therefore, to sum this all up, and I think we're probably going to need to take next time to 
complete this whole thing on the Canaanites. But to sum up this part, because of Satan's influence over the world, the whole world system is wicked, ungodly, perverse, and it's leading people away from Jesus Christ. It's an antichrist system. Look what Paul writes again in another place to the Galatians. Galatians 1 and verse 4. I'm going to read from the Amplified. Speaking about Christ, who gave or yielded himself up to atone for our sins and to save and sanctify us in order to rescue and deliver us from what? From this present wicked age and world order. To rescue and deliver us from this present wicked age and world order in accordance with the will and purpose and plan of our God and Father. I don't know about you, but I am quite convinced that this age in which we live and the whole world order that is becoming more and more clear and dominant with each passing day, it is completely wicked, it is completely fallen. It's a wicked age and world order. And thank God, Jesus gave himself to deliver us, not just from sin, but it says specifically here, he gave himself on the cross to deliver us from that wicked age and world order that we find prevalent in our day. Look also in Philippians chapter 2, verses 14 to 16. Do all things without complaining and disputing, that you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. We are living in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. Nevertheless, our call, our mission, our challenge is explained by Paul here. In the middle of all that, all the filth and perversion that's going on in America now, we must stand and shine as lights in the world, holding fast, or the King James says, holding forth. I like both. Hold fast to it, and then hold it forth to the people around you, the word of life, so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. Jesus put it this way 
referring to this generation, this world system in which we find ourselves. Matthew 16, 4, a wicked and adulterous generation. A wicked and adulterous generation. And finally, to finish up this section, Ephesians 6, verses we've often talked about, our warfare is not against flesh and blood. These seven nations don't represent people. So don't get out your sword and start cutting off people's heads. Our warfare is a spiritual warfare. But notice exactly what Paul says here in Ephesians 6, verses 11 and 12. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, and notice the next part, and against the powers of this dark world. There are powers behind this dark world. There are powers behind political parties, political forces, political movements. There are powers behind false religions. There are powers behind these different terrorist movements that we hear about. There are powers behind false religions. Powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. We're going to need the whole armor of God, the full power of God, to take our stand against these powers of the dark world. Now, in John chapter 17, you remember there's a, a lengthy prayer there that Jesus gave just before he went to the cross. Sometimes we refer to it as his high priestly prayer, the prayer that he offered to his father the night before going to the cross. And there are a couple of points I want to draw from that prayer. And basically what we learn here is a very important truth that ties all that we've talked about thus far together. We are in the world, not of the world. Two different things. In the world, we're all here. We have to be in the midst of all this filth, perversion, defilement, drug addiction, wickedness, and on and on the list goes. <coughs> we're in it, but not of it. In other words, we don't partake of it. We're not friends with the world. We don't buy into its philosophies. We don't laugh at its jokes. We don't put on its clothing. We don't sing its songs. We're separate. We're different from the world, but we have to be in it. Alright, so notice what Jesus prays. John 17, I'm going to start in verse 6 and probably jump around here. I have revealed you, he's talking to his father, I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, 
You gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. Verse 9, I pray for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. Verse 11, I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world. And I am coming to you, Holy Father. Protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. Thank God he prayed for you and for me for our protection. Verse 12, While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by that name you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction, speaking about Judas, so that Scripture would be fulfilled. Verse 13. I am coming to you now, but I say these things while I am still in the world, so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them. Notice that. The, the world, the people that make up this world system, because I gave them your word, they have hated them. For they, speaking of the disciples, they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. They're in it, but they're not of it. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. Notice that this goes right along with what John later writes in his epistle. The evil one is in charge of the world. That's why we must not be of the world. Verse 16. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them. Sanctify means to separate. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. In other words, you can summarize this very simply. We're in the world, not of it. We have to be here in the world. He can't take us out of the world just yet. But while we're here, we're protected, we're sanctified by the Word of God so that we will not be of the world, not partake in its philosophies, its ways, or anything else. A little later in John, when Jesus stood before Pontius Pilate, these were his words. My kingdom is not of this world. I wish more Christians would understand that. My kingdom is not of this world. The kingdom of God has nothing to do with this world system. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now... My kingdom is from another place. I want to read one more scripture, and we're going to end here, 
and we'll have to pick this up right here next time. Galatians 6, verse 14. May I never boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me, and I to the world. It's a very interesting concept. He's talking about the cross of Christ, and basically saying, may I never stop bragging, boasting about the cross of Jesus Christ. In another place he says, God forbid that I should preach anything else but the cross of Christ. It, it was the centerpiece of Paul's life and ministry and message. May I never boast except in the cross. Now we know the cross brought forgiveness from sin. The cross brought cleansing. The cross brought victory over the devil. The cross brought us eternal life. But none of those are listed here. Paul's talking about something totally different. May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me, and I have been crucified to the world. Two different ways. It's two directions. The world has been crucified to me, and I have been crucified to the world. So guess what happens? There's this gulf between us and the world that cannot be bridged. It's called sanctification. We've been set apart. We've been separated from the world and its system through the cross of Jesus Christ. Jesus had nothing to do with this world. His kingdom has nothing to do with this world. Why do we want to be of the world? When in another scripture that we'll look at later on, God says, come out, come out from among them, be separate. Don't have fellowship and compromise and connection with the spirit of this world. Break every tie with the world. And again, we're still here. We still have to walk this earth. We still have to go to work tomorrow. We still have to rub shoulders with people, but we're in the world, not of it. And next time we're going to look more specifically at this merchant spirit. Remember, that's what Canaanite represents, merchants. And we're going to focus more specifically on what we talked about at the very beginning, the love of money. Money is not evil. And whatever amount of money you're talking about isn't evil. It's the love for it that's the root of all evil. And we'll pick up right there next time in 1 Timothy 6, where Paul has a very lengthy um, exhortation for young Timothy, warning him to stay away from that spirit of greed, covetousness, wanting to get rich, and specifically... He's talking about people in ministry who want to use the ministry as a means to getting rich. Oh, God, help us not to use the ministry as a cloak 
for our greed and covetousness and our love for money. That, my friend, is the root of all evil. And the cross separates us and sets us free from the world. The spirit that God places in us, the Holy Spirit, will help us to remain separate from the world's system, from the world's philosophy, and being strong disciples in the Word. We must know the Word of God so that our minds are not deceived by the lies and the false philosophies of this world, of false religions, of atheistic, humanistic thought that is taught in all of the public schools, right on up through the community colleges, colleges and universities. We must be strong in the Word, strong in the Spirit, and put on the whole armor of God and know Jesus died on the cross so that we can be separate from this world. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. Let's pray tonight that God may help us. This is a continual battle for every child of God because we're in the midst of all this stuff and we have to battle against this Canaanite spirit that wants to draw us back down that road of loving stuff and wanting more stuff and wanting more money and wanting to be like all of our friends and and wanting to be liked by everybody. Well, that's just not going to happen if we're going to be a true follower of Christ. The world will hate us. People will reject us. They will not like us because they didn't like Jesus either. And it's a spirit that is behind this world system, an antichrist spirit that is continually opposing your life and mine when we want to follow Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father God, in the name of Jesus, we thank you that you have placed us in this world, but you've told us not to be of it, not to imitate it, not to love it, not to want to follow its ways, but to come out and to be separate. God, I thank you for the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And through that cross, the world has been crucified to us, and we have been crucified to the world. Thank you for giving us not the spirit of the world, but the spirit of God, who reveals to us the kingdom of God, which is not of this world, but it's from another place. Holy Spirit, I pray for each one uh, participating in this Bible study that you would strengthen us with power and might in the inner man. You would clothe us with your holy armor to be able to stand against every scheme, every wile of the devil, stand against the powers that are behind this dark world. Lord, in these last days, we see evil and darkness increasing all around us. But we're also standing on your promise that in these last days, a greater glory, a greater anointing, a greater power will come upon your church, the Bride of Christ, to arise and shine for the glory of the Lord 
has risen upon us. Keep us unspotted, keep us undefiled, keep us unpolluted from all of the garbage and all of the darkness that's in this present evil world. Keep us holy for you until that day when the trumpet sounds and your bride is called up. God, I thank you and I praise you for each and every one with us tonight. Bless them, make them a blessing, keep them, protect them by the mighty power of God until that final day. In Jesus' name we all pray. Amen.